Hi, everyone, and welcome to Dead to Rights, the podcast. I'm your host, Donna Carrick. Wow, we're nearly through the month of July and our terrific early summer lineup. Today, we're delighted to bring you young adult adventure and steampunk author Jane Barnard of the Maddie Hatter series and When the Flood Falls. For our readers on the run, we've got a great short story by Jane titled Easter Aches, which first appeared in World Enough and Crime, Carrick Publishing, 2014. Next week, be sure to tune in again when we'll feature an interview with literary author Jen Knox of The Glass City and After the Gazebo. I want to take a moment to send a quick shout out to our kids. Sorry to do this, but it's been a terrific season for all four of them. Thomas Kaz and his lady Holly Quibell and Ted and Tammy Carrick. Thomas and Holly ventured off to London in May, where Holly conducted a live interview, and this, by the way, was the weekend of Megan and Harry's wedding. Holly conducted a live interview with Stephen Hackett. Then they went on to Sweden, where she presented a paper at the Lund University. A couple of weeks ago, Ted was practicing jazz piano in one of his university's rehearsal rooms when a fellow musician encouraged him to audition for a spot in the Etobicoke Junior Jazz Band. Not counting his chances as particularly high, he raced off immediately and met with the managers. After a brief audition, he was assured they would call him. Late that evening, he did receive a call, and he's been playing with them ever since. We were thrilled to see him perform in Mimico on this past Friday evening. The band will appear this coming Thursday, July 26th, at the Beaches Jazz Festival on beautiful Lake Ontario. If you're in the city and looking for something fun to do, come on out and encourage these talented young musicians. Our youngest, Tammy, celebrated an important milestone birthday last week, on Monday. A huge happy 16th birthday to you. Now, of course, she's madly studying the driver's ed book. Sigh. Thanks for bearing with me for a sideline on the home front. I don't usually meander off that way, but Alec and I have been working so hard, and it's important once in a while to remember why we do it. As you're no doubt aware, it's been a real heck of a week. Between the summit in Helsinki and the ongoing game of verbal scrabble and missing contractions, Things are looking a tad ominous on the world stage at the moment. In these confusing times, it's important to say what we mean and mean what we say. And that goes especially for you writers out there. Which leads me to my book review for this week. It's an oldie but a true classic and well worth revisiting in 2018. The book I'm referring to is one I read in the early 80s and it has stayed with me all these years. It's titled It Can't Happen Here by Sinclair Lewis. To give you a quick overview, I'll read the blurb from the Amazon selling page. It Can't Happen Here is a semi-satirical political novel by Sinclair Lewis published in 1935. It features newspaperman Doramus Jessup struggling against the fascist regime of President Berzelius Buzz Windrift, 
who resembled Gerald B. Winrod, the Kansas evangelist whose far-right views earned him the nickname the Jayhawk Nazi. It serves as a warning that political movements akin to Nazism can come to power in countries such as the United States when people blindly support their leaders. Of course, this classic is now available in Kindle, print, or Audible editions for your preferred reading style. Actually, I have to say, the Amazon selling page doesn't do this book justice. Yes, there is a semi-satirical element, but in no time the power of Lewis's narrative will plunge readers headlong into a fictional America, ruled by terrifying fascism and extreme right-wing evangelism. I personally recall I could not put this book down. The gentle soul protagonist, Doremus Jessup, a liberal newspaper man, could hardly stand a chance in the face of such brutal tyranny. I highly recommend this book to all readers, especially those of voting age or approaching voting age. Please buy or borrow a copy of It Can't Happen Here by Sinclair Lewis, and then treat yourself to a review of the current news highlights from the past two weeks. I think you'll be surprised at the parallels. And remember, we're all living on a precipice, and we're only one small contraction away from It Can Happen Here. And now, on that happy note, stay with me as I bring you this week's short story by Jane Barnard, titled Easter Eggs, from World Enough and Crime, Carrick Publishing. Editor's Note. Frightening. Jane Barnard brings us vulnerable characters and a desperate plot in her riveting story of ambition and deception. Easter Eggs by Jane Barnard. You'll poison me. It was Artie Rusnak's usual complaint. He wasn't the only poison-obsessed Kimberly Acres resident. Half the sweet old ladies in this senior's home were convinced the other half would kill them for their lunch seat next to the Acres' most eligible widower, whoever they thought that was. Not today, Mr. Rusnak, said Darlene. But if you don't want it, he snatched the chocolate egg as she trundled the cart toward the reception desk to ask me, you want tea? Leave the pot, I said, shoving aside stacks of candy confiscated from the residents. Didn't relatives realize that all these sweets played fast and loose with elderly digestive systems? My throat is killing me, I said. I hope you're not getting that flu. Darlene peered past me to view her reflection in the office window, fluffing up her straw blonde hair. Shelby Todd's coming in tonight, but she looks like death. Or it might be her screaming fight with Remy in the parking lot. Over his new truck, I bet. She caught my look. I wasn't spying. I saw them through the window of Pear Bono's room. Right. While she was in there smoking, I thought. The comatose old priest couldn't squeal on her, but her clothes reeked, and his room would too. She offloaded the tea urn, pocketed a chocolate bunny, and trundled away just as Shelby appeared. 
The senior nurse kicked off her soggy snow boots in the front entrance, flung her jacket at the office coat rack, and dropped into a chair. As she bent to put on her nursing shoes, gray roots were visible on the top of her head, creating a skunk stripe. How to look all of your fifty-whatever years. Excuse me. I looked up, square into the eyes of the handsomest man to walk through these doors since, well, ever. I did a quick shoulder check for Darlene. Kappa's casing's dating pool for over-thirties is barely ankle-deep. She wades in amongst the bottom feeders on occasion, but I don't. Thus, I haven't dated in a couple of years. I wasn't about to let her blow my chance of reeling in a handsome stranger. I offered my warmest smile, but to no avail. All handsome wanted was to talk to Artie Rusnak and others of that era. He showed a letter from our head office, authorizing him to hang around, asking local history questions, so long as he didn't disturb the residents. I was only staff, but when he smiled at me, I was so disturbed I almost drooled on my purple scrubs. First, you sign in and hand sanitize. I pointed out the sani stand and the pen, watched as he first printed, then scrawled, Richard Delaney, in the appropriate boxes. Artie's having his tea, I said. Would you like a cup? When Richard sat down, Artie told him, They poisoned my old friend Gill for his money. I know. I used to be with the OPP. Richard, unfazed, said, You know about every crime that happened on your watch. I left them to it and started collecting teacups at the far end of the corridor. By the time I had worked my way back, Artie was happily and almost accurately recounting the case of the body in the bush. Richard prompted, And it had been there all those years? Artie nodded. Since 1977, those Andrew boys, they didn't tell a soul, because their double still setup was near the body. Well, that and Robert's long-haired wife, her folks were Air Force, soon moved on, but she stayed. She went with Davy Andrews before Robert came home for the summer from university. Some said after that, too, but I never believed those rumors. Spiteful women's gossip. And Helene, Robert's mom, was the worst, always with the knife edge on her tongue. Who'd blame a girl for running off rather than share a roof with Helene? We all thought Robert had gone after his wife, turned his back on his family, until the body was found. He paused, looking sad, then returned to his theme of the day. They poisoned Gill, you know. I'm afraid that's all you'll get from him this time around, Mr. Delaney, I said. Artie, are you ready for family feud? I helped him to his walker, and he clomped toward the TV lounge. As we strolled the other way, Richard said, He talked about the Godet family like they were the Kennedy clan. Gilbert Godet was a Joe Kennedy figure 50 years ago, except he had five daughters and only one son. Gil made a fortune in lumber, but he lived out his last years here in Kimberly Acres like anyone else. He and Artie were as thick as thieves until last fall's epidemic, norovirus and a respiratory. 
We lost three residents, and some of the others never fully recovered, Artie being one. He seemed lucid to me, mostly. He spins a good yarn, but he garbles bits of them together now. If you want to hear the originals, I taped them when he first moved in. Ha! Something Darlene couldn't cap with her bigger, better, tighter, or brighter assets. Richard glowed like he'd seen the grail. I'm sure you wouldn't lend them, but could I copy some? Or listen to them at least? They really are tapes, I said. Unless you have an old cassette player handy, you'll have to use mine. I capped it off by offering him candy eggs. He capped that off by offering to buy me lunch tomorrow in the staff cafeteria if I'd bring my tape player and Artie's tapes. He'd be working out of the staff conference room and could listen there. Later, as I spoon-fed mashed potatoes, wiped chins, and coaxed Artie to eat his peas, I privately gloated. A date! Having that to anticipate almost made up for Shelby spending the dark hours in Pear Bono's dim room, her forehead resting on his bed. Whether she was snoozing, praying, or sobbing over her wastrel husband, the spoiled only son of the oldest Godette daughter, she wasn't needed on the floor for a change, so I left her to it. The next day, toting a bag of Artie-era tapes and my battered portable cassette player, gussied up in my new good street clothes, because who wants to do a first date in hospital scrubs? I arrived early at the conference room. Richard was huddled over a laptop, and I took a moment to appreciate his dark curls and strong, clean-shaven jaw. Being seen with him wouldn't hurt my reputation any. I took him down to the calf and made my best effort at small talk, but he kept bringing up Gilbert Godet. His son's murder is unsolved, right? They know where now, but not exactly when or by whom. Think of the cover copy. Whom? No man from Cap could say that without sounding fake. I've always been a sucker for a vocabulary. Yeah, I said. Artie talks about that on his tape. I looked around. The lunch crowd had all but vanished. We can listen to it now if you like. While Richard refilled our mugs, I fast-forwarded through the third-hand description of bitter arguments between Helene, Robert's mother, and Joanne, his young wife, that led to Joanne hopping the next bus south, with Robert presumably following her a couple of weeks later. Once Richard was ready with his notebook, I hit play. Artie's voice, slightly fuzzy, said, they should have posted a reward, but Helene didn't want anyone saying she drove her son away. So they hired this detective, but all he found was a speeding ticket Robert got near North Bay a couple of days after he left Capus Gazing. Got, but never paid. Helene hoped to her last breath they were out there somewhere, raising sons to carry on the name. Gil left everything to Robert. I remembered that day, how Artie made me shut off the tape to hear about Gil's will, everything to Robert, then Robert's children, and then, only if none of the above survived, a share-out to his daughters and their kids. Gil didn't like his sons-in-law and hoped those bozos wouldn't see a dime, 
but Artie wouldn't say that on the record. He went on. When the body was tripped over by those kids out hunting last fall, Robert had been gone so long the OPP couldn't trace his movements or even tell for sure when he died. He might have left town and come back a few years later or never left the area at all. Of course, they interviewed the Andrews boys, what with the body being found a mile or so from Mrs. Andrews' farm. Yes, I said, a mile, Missy, and don't you correct it to kilometers. I smiled at the memory as my voice on the tape said, I won't. I assume Davy Andrews denied all knowledge of the body. Artie gave a yappy laugh. Not on your life. Davy claimed he and his brother found it on the road near there still. The head was shot half off, but they knew Robert and his car was right beside him. Figured why should a hunting accident by persons unknown force them to move their rock gut operation. So they dragged the body into the woods, took his wallet, and sold the car to a chop shop in North Bay. Donnie was interviewed in Monteith Jail, arson charge that time, and he told pretty much the same story. Either they rehearsed it or it was the truth. Richard leaned over the tape recorder as if Artie was in there and could hear him. He was right by his car and shot. Could he have killed himself? Shh, I said, and let the tape play on while Artie discussed forensics, the likely range of the shot, and then a hopeless foot-by-foot search for the 30-year-old shell casing and any other evidence. I was retired by then, Artie was saying, but I got this report straight from a young OPP who came to ask me if the Andrews boy's tale could possibly be true. I said you had to know them back then to believe it. They thought moonshining whiskey to pipeline camps was going to make them rich, get them out of Mitchell's corner forever. Instead, they went to jail, been in and out ever since. If they killed him, they'd claim it was a hunting accident anyway, that they just covered it up. No one could prove different, and the worst they'd face is another few years. Artie digressed, and I turned the tape off. You get anything new out of that? Richard, you're really pale. He blotted his forehead with a paper napkin. Yeah, must have eaten something that disagreed with me. How much more is there? Long as you're not contagious, I won't have to kick you out. There's about five hours of Artie's stories, not all about Robert or the Godets, but they're sprinkled through the rest. I caught sight of the clock above the salad fridge and jumped up. I'll be late for work. Can I keep these tapes for the afternoon, Richard asked. Sure, drop them at reception when you leave. I'm on until 11 tonight. I hurried off to change. Richard followed to chat with Artie, or rather to mine the old man for every last scrap of memory. I was changed and at the desk when he came back, wearing my zany blue flowered scrubs today, although I usually save them for the final day of my rotation. Hey, they're good with my eyes, and a girl needs every edge, with Darlene and her full frontals in the vicinity. I doled out chocolate eggs to keep him there and suggested other residents he might interview. We were bantering along nicely about post-work drinks when, behind me, there sounded an almighty crash and clatter. I turned to see Shelby, 
whiter than the ceiling tiles, clutching the office door frame to stay upright in the midst of strewn files, a broken coffee mug, and a slew of metal barf pans. I ran to help her to a chair, barely aware of Richard waving as he trotted back to Artie's tapes. Shelby, you shouldn't be at work if you're sick. I'm, I'm fine, she said. I just need to lie down. At home, I'll call Remy for you. No, she took a deeper breath. I'll rest in the break room for a bit. I helped her creep as far as the front counter, where she leaned a while before heading down the hall. If I had to cover both our jobs all shift, I'd be a wreck by eleven. I grumbled over the cleanup until Darlene came along with a tea trolley and sloshed me out a cup. Anything good in the files today, she asked, rifling the chocolate boxes for a nutty one. Per Bono moved his toes. Nice for him, she said. Where's Shelby? I explained, adding that I wished she would go home so I could call in a casual to cover her work. Darlene tutted. And catch Remy with some woman? Who'd risk that? You're kidding, I said. What rock do you live under, hun? Since the kids moved out, he's always trying to get women home with him when she's working evenings or nights. Even me, his own daughter's best friend. Slime bucket. Why would anyone go home with that creepy old fart? Because he's Gil Gaudet's grandson and going to be rich soon. She closed one chocolate box and opened another. Can't come too soon for Shelby, I'll bet. She'll divorce his ass the day after and the inheritance is settled. Only way to get out without taking half his debts. That new Ford F-150 he's driving? Bought in Timmins. Nobody here will sell to him on credit. His big new Bayliner boat that he keeps out at Moonbeam Marina? About to get repossessed. They're way behind on their mortgage, too. Gil finally died, so they're safer for now. No banker in town wants to piss off Cap's next millionaires. Old Gil would be turning in his grave, I said. Yeah, all the class went under that family a generation back when Robert Godet ran off after some low-rent base brat or died or whatever. That's what's holding up the inheritance. The lawyers have to make sure Robert didn't have kids before they can split up the pile. And nobody knows his wife's maiden name anymore. Per Bono married him, I think. Same year as Shelby and Remy. But he can't tell anybody anything now, poor old coot. Just lying there drooling year after year. My time comes, I don't want to go slow like him. A yell and a clatter came from the TV lounge. Darlene scuttled away before she could be sent to help. I went along to the lounge to restore order, feeling sorry for Shelby. A high school star, provincial biathlon champion at 16, and look at her now. It was the typical small town story. Got pregnant by her first boyfriend, married too young, stayed too long for her children's sake, and was working herself to death while he played around. She needed the break the inheritance offered. If the only delay was finding Robert's wife's maiden name, Per Bono's tape might have it. I'd just have to drop by the conference room on my break and ask Richard if I'd brought that one along. Thoughtful of my co-workers, that's me. Shelby came back before the supper rush, looking a bit better. 
She was friendly, too, asking about Richard, how old he was, where he came from. I told her about the book project and his interest in Robert's death. She shook her head. No good raking up that old past now that Gil and Helene are gone. Don't you want to see justice done for Robert, I asked. She shrugged. I'd rather see that money so I can pay off my kids' student loans, get them off to a good start in life. Some start. They were my age, give or take, and had been out of college for years. If they weren't started by now, they were as lazy as their old man. I said, well, I'm going to listen to my pair bono tape for Joanne's maiden name. Maybe that will speed things up. She smiled. An excuse to visit your new friend? You can go right now. Take him some tea while you're at it. But hurry back. Supper's up in ten minutes. We found Pear Bono's tape, but Richard was halfway through another of Artie's digressive memory dumps and said he'd listen later. I didn't linger. Supper's to serve. Chins to wipe. Once the residents were in bed, Shelby went to lie in the dark for another hour. Richard hung around the desk for most of that time, chatting and sampling Easter candy, lightly flirting until I was pretty sure he was angling for that post-work drink to be at my place. He even stacked chairs in the TV room while Shelby and I did our last rounds. A basic nice guy. When the night nurse clocked in, I didn't bother changing back to street clothes. I just headed off with Richard to pack up the tapes and carry them, and him, to my place. Except the tapes were gone. The tape player sat on the table, mouth gaping, but Pear Bono's tape and every one of Artie's had disappeared. Apart from Richard's briefcase and my tape bag, there was nowhere they could hide. All the same, I crawled on the floor, checking under the chairs. Richard watched, at first without comment. Then he said, don't any of your residents wander at night? They could have walked off with these. And does it matter if the memoirs of an old priest are missing? Anything interesting he knew would be under the seal of the confessional. It does matter, I said. Per Bono is the only lead to Joanne's maiden name. He knelt beside me. I know her last name. I stared at him. You do? Then why? He grinned. A beautiful woman invites me home late at night, and I'm going to say it's not necessary? I sort of smiled back. I guess not. You got it from the newspapers, huh? The lawyers should have tried there. I got it from here. He pulled out his wallet and put his laminated birth certificate into my hand. I read, Richard Delaney Godet, born Kingston, Ontario, December 12th, 1977. Then you're Robert and Joanne's son, yes, he sighed. I'll tell you all about it, but off the floor, please. I let him raise me, rather than scramble clumsily up on my own, and took a chair, and a minute to let the whirl in my brain settle. He thought me beautiful, but he had lied to me by omission about something as basic as his last name and there was something fishy about those tapes vanishing, just when there was a lead to Robert Godet's wife and son. But he'd been with me, so he had not hidden them himself. Besides, there were so many other ways he could have distracted me from listening, especially if he smiled at me the way he was doing now, 
only in my dimly lit living room with soft music playing in the background. A hem. I don't think a resident took them, I said. When they wake up at night, it's for the bathroom, and most of them ring for help getting there. But who besides us would care about the tapes all of a sudden? The answer came to me in one of those blinding flashes. Oh, God, Shelby. I told her Per Bono might have your mother's name on my tape. If the lawyers found Joanne and then you, Remy would inherit nothing. As long as the estate's in limbo, the bank won't foreclose on her family. But how would she know you existed? Until today, when I guess she recognized you and darn near fainted from the shock, you must look like your dad. So, it is the same, Shelby, Richard perched on a corner of the conference table. When she realized she was pregnant, my mother called a woman named Shelby, her only friend in the family, she told me. She pleaded with Shelby to ask Robert to phone her so they could talk about what to do next. He never called. She tried the house a few times, but chickened out whenever Helene answered, and then Shelby hung up on her. That's when she figured Robert didn't want anything to do with her or the baby, and went on with life by herself, pre-child support laws. Nobody would walk away nowadays. All it takes is a DNA swab and a court order to force payment. I grabbed his hands. He didn't call because he was already dead, I bet. Shelby must have told Remy who she was either already married to or about to marry about your mom's call. Shelby was pregnant when she got married, so she'd be looking for a secure future with Remy, and that meant cutting out Robert's wife and baby. Remy must have gambled on Joanne not coming back if Robert wasn't around to ask her to. I bet he lured your father out to Mitchell's corner and shot him. He expected to become the official heir as soon as Robert's body was found. No internet then, no 24-hour news cycle. One dead body in the north might never be reported in any southern Ontario newspaper, much less one your mother would see regularly. Nowadays, she could easily set a Google alert for any mention of Robert's name but the family hung in limbo all those years until it was found. They never knew you existed. If you're right, said Richard, standing up, and Remy learns we're looking into the murder, what's he going to do next? I pushed back my chair. He'll silence Pear Bono, and maybe Artie, too. Come on, I need to know those old men are okay before we do anything else. We crept along the night-dimmed corridor, our footsteps mingling with the light jazz the night nurse played while she charted. Artie's snores were shaking the giant Easter bunny taped to his door, so I only peeked in to make sure he was alone. Peering around Pear's half-open door, I saw Shelby kneeling by the bed, hands clasped and head bent. A soft murmur reached my ears. Richard looked past my shoulder, then pulled me away. Catholics, he muttered, always thinking confession solves everything. Does it count with God if the priest is in a coma? My mind flashed back a few steps to Artie's room. I hurried in for a second look and came out holding a box of chocolates. These were behind reception at Lights Out. I told you they wander at night, Richard opened the box. Rum butter centers, irresistible. As he plucked the first 
chocolate from the box, some part of my brain registered a deja vu. A box of chocolates was found in Gil Godet's room when he died. Why? He had a stomach virus, vomiting and diarrhea for three days before his heart quit. No eating chocolates then. In the midst of the twin epidemics, with people coughing, barfing, shitting, and dying, I hadn't given the box a moment's thought beyond setting it aside for the nurse's station. Shelby had emptied the box into the garbage instead. Don't eat that, I snapped, snatching it from his fingers and ran towards reception. In good light, the freshly melted seam around three chocolate spaces was easy to see. I cracked one open and found an assortment of chopped pills pressed into the rum butter filling. I held it out to Richard. Remy couldn't have done this without being noticed coming or going on the floor. Shelby must have doctored them in the break room when I thought she was lying down. And if she doctored these chocolates, she might have poisoned my grandfather the same way. Maybe Artie's mind isn't so far gone after all. We both looked down the corridor to Pear Bono's half-open door. I thought of Shelby all those years ago, young and fit from her winter biathlon training, a provincial champion with a long gun. She was dating Remy. Maybe she was even pregnant already. And there was Robert, deserted by his wife, unsuspecting and alone on a back road, meeting Shelby for what he probably thought was news of Joanne's whereabouts. Did Shelby use his shotgun or bring her own competition rifle? Did it even matter now? Whatever Shelby had done back then, whatever she might have whispered to the old priest in those dark hours by his bed, was lost in the mist of time and the mystery of the confessional. So much pain and uncertainty for the Godet family. So many years of Richard believing his father had refused to acknowledge him. All those heartaches because of one woman's ambition or her desperation. Easter, a time of redemption, but not for Shelby. What we held in our hands was hard evidence of attempted murder. Time to call the OPP. And that has been Easter Eggs by Jane Barnard. Thank you for listening. And now, we're thrilled to bring you the award-winning author of the Maddie Hatter series and When the Flood Falls, Jane Barnard. Her Maddie Hatter series, set in the alternate 1899, follows a young fashion reporter determined to break into investigative journalism. She's a pre-Aurora finalist, a BPAA finalist, and winner of the E-Festival of Words Children's Fiction Award for Maddie Hatter. Her first contemporary crime novel, When the Flood Falls, won the Dundurn Unhanged Arthur in 2016. Flood follows traumatized ex-Mountie, Lacey McRae, as she tries to rebuild her life and save her best friend in the foothills of Alberta. It's available at Amazon since July 2018, so it's just out now. Please go and have a look and find this great book. Good morning, Jane, and welcome to Dead to Rights. How are you today? Very well, thank you. Good. Funny day on in Calgary. Oh, it is. How how is the weather out your way today? 
cooler than yesterday. Yesterday we hit a high of 33 degrees, mm. baking sunlight, but today it's back to normal. I know what the prairies are like. Now, are you uh, located in the foothills or are you more in the prairie area? We're in the prairie area. The foothills officially start about 30 kilometers to the west of us. Okay. <laughs> I lived in Saskatchewan for five years, so I know what baking sunlight is like, believe me. It can be pretty unpleasant. It's much cooler here today, too. We've had uh, stinking heat, you can just imagine, because I know you've been to Toronto quite often. Um, and it's just been stinking hot, really bad. Sorry for the description, but really bad. Um, so, Jane, I wanted to speak with you because you're an award-winning author, and uh, you write um, a young adult adventure series called, uh, I believe it's called the Maddie Hatter series, and you also have a crime novel, When the Flood Falls, which I think was um, won the Unhanged Arthur Ellis Award, didn't it? Yes, it did in 2016. Okay, so tell me first of all about uh, When the Flood Falls. Well... When the Flood Falls uh, follows a burnt-out ex-RCMP corporal who has fled from the lower mainland of B.C. and an abusive marriage up to the foothills of Alberta to try and get her head sorted out. And what she finds when she arrives is that the old university roommate she's staying with has problems of her own. Someone is prowling around the isolated wilderness estate in the middle of the night, leaving no trace, just being heard in the dark. And what Lacey finds almost immediately is that without any evidence at all, it's possible that Dee has imagined the whole thing. Mm-hmm. That's Until, really creepy. Yes. And all the while, the snow melt is coming down and the rains are building up over the Rockies, and I don't know if you saw any of the coverage of the 2013 floods out in the foothills. Yes. When Calgary was underwater for 10 days, <sighs> downtown Calgary, where all the money is. Mm -hmm. um, and all of the foothills towns suffered tremendously. In Bragg Creek, the Elbow River, just downstream of the Elbow Falls, that the books are, series are named after, is usually a narrow blue strip of water in a wide rocky bed. Mm -hmm. In 2013, it was a half a kilometer wide. Mm. Brown, churning water filled with trees, moving boulders. It changed the landscape, and it went right through downtown Bragg Creek. Mm -hmm. So now, every June, there's an undercurrent of tension in Bragg Creek and its environs, waiting to see if that perfect storm of snowmelt and rainfall is going to happen again. Almost, almost it, like a uh, weather post-traumatic uh, stress disorder. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. A meteorological disorder. <laughs> but no, I know it was it was really devastating when it happened. I, I remember, and of course, by the time it reaches places like Calgary. There's not much to stop it, is there? No, there isn't. Um, and so when Lacey moves from the Lower Mainland, she walks right into this undercurrent of region-wide tension and then finds it becomes very particularized. So it could be contributing to her friend's 
delusion if it's a delusion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that's pretty intriguing. Um, Now, has that book, it's available, it says here, July 2018. So really, right now, it's going to be available, isn't it? It's uh, on pre-order until the 14th, officially. Okay. But it has been showing up on store shelves already. Okay, excellent. Well, we're airing on July 22nd, so it will be available. It's called When the Flood Falls by Jane Barnard, and it is published by, uh, is it published by Dundurn? It is. Okay, excellent. Ex-Mountie Lacey McRae tries to rebuild her life and save her best friend in the foothills of Alberta. So if you're interested at all in this beautiful country, and I'm always pushing readers from anywhere in the world to learn more about Canada, I think you're going to enjoy When the Flood Falls. But you've got a history of writing something just a little bit funkier than that, don't you? And I'm thinking of the uh, Maddie Hatter series, which really looks like a lot of fun. Can you tell us a little bit about that series? Yes, we're up to three books in that series. It is a lightly steampunked fantasy adventure for girls aged 10 to 100. <laughs> well, that would that would cover me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm somewhere between 10 and 100. <laughs> I think I write in part for my 10-year-old self. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just judging by the covers, I think that's probably true. You've got titles like uh, uh, Maddie Hatter and the Deadly Diamond, Maddie Hatter and the Timely Taffeta. Am I saying that correctly? Taffeta, yes. The all right. All right. Excellent. Excellent. Tell us a little bit about Maddie. Well, Maddie is a 20-year-old steam lord's daughter. And a steam lord is a fictional peer of England. Uh, In Maddie's world, steam energy rose rapidly um, in the 1800s. Instead of gradually switching over to gasoline engines, steam technology went everywhere. And Maddie's father, or grandfather, developed a particular kind of steam technology that was very useful and became, um, was granted a peerage by Queen Victoria. So Maddie comes from a very wealthy kind of combination industrial and old nobility family. And their whole goal with having a daughter was to get her married off. Mm-hmm. To, you know, advantageously as, you know, the peerage tends to do. Mm-hmm. Well, Maddie rebelled against that ran away from her own debutante's ball, stowed away on an experimental Navy airship, and made her own way in the world. She sounds like my kind of girl. I forgot to add the third title, Maddie Hatter and the Gilded Gage. You've got a bit of a fabric-y kind of theme in there, too, which the crafter in me likes. Ah. <laughs> well, Gilded Gage is kind of a send-up of the Edith Wharton books mm-hmm. that were set in Gilded Age New York City. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I love lush fabrics and fancy dresses and high society. I wouldn't want to live there, but it's really fun to visit. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And these books certainly allow you to visit. So, okay, just taking taking these one at a time. The Deadly Diamond. Give me a little synopsis of that one. In The Deadly Diamond, Maddie is in Cairo, writing fashion columns on the English expats who winter there 
when she turns out to be the last reporter to interview an eccentric explorer named Baron Bodman, who is going into the Nubian desert with his airship on a quest for a legendary diamond. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't come back. Okay, okay. So Maddie must solve what happened to him. Mm-hmm. Yes. And oh. the story actually opens when his airship turns up deserted, not in Egypt, but in England. Mm-hmm. So many, many thousands of flight miles away from where it started, and nobody knows what happened. So Maddie chases off to first England and then America, following the trail of what happened to the Baron, okay. and where is the diamond now? Okay, okay. Uh, these are set in, um, it says here, it says here, set in an ultimate 1899, and she's a young fashion reporter who's determined to break into investigative journalism. What great fun that is. What inspired you, for Pete's sake, to write a series like this? Because it's quite different. Well, uh, as it turns out, my husband is a, one of the earliest public steampunks in Alberta. Mm-hmm. And he was being much photographed in his beautiful top hat and goggles um, for things like Beakerhead, which is an arts and sciences combination festival here every September. Mm-hmm. And all of the people around him were dressed in fabulous clothing. And what is your husband's name, Jane? Uh, my husband is Kevin Jepson. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I got drawn in, partly because I love playing dress-up, too, and partly because I saw the potential for an online role-playing game. Mm -hmm. So I organized and ran an online role-playing game in a steampunk universe Mm -hmm. that I created. What fun! (laughs) And when we had to stop playing the game because time zone conflicts and so on with the people around the world got too much for me, I couldn't leave that world behind. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's how Maddie was born. Wow. And she's just so much fun to write. You've also been featured in a number of anthologies, including Carrick Publishing's own World Enough and Crime. And uh, today's episode will have already played Easter Eggs, which was your story in that. You were also in The Whole She Bang 3, which was the Sisters in Crime um, anthology. And can you tell us what else you were featured in? Because I know you were in a few. Well, I've been in several, but the one that's coming out this summer is a really fun one, too, Donna, that you might appreciate. It is a hard-boiled female detective investigating a murder on a space station. Mm-hmm. And she has to go outside and pull the body away from the outside of the space station and then finds out that it's not an escaped or slave, but a very high-up courtesan. Mm. And what's that? What is that called? And that story is called Painted Jade, and it's coming out in the anthology The Dame Was Trouble. (laughs) I've heard of that. And when does that get released again? I believe that's releasing August the 10th this summer. Okay, so folks, watch for that. The Dame Was Trouble. I've heard of that one. I would have loved to to have submitted to that. Um, It sounds like it's just going to be a great anthology. And Jane's got a story in that. And the title of the story again, Jane? The story is called Painted Jade. Painted Jade. Wonderful. That's great. 
Um, now, what's next? Well, what's next is, honestly, two more books this year. This is my busiest writing time ever, as I've just turned in the second in The Falls Mysteries, mm-hmm. following Lacey, who does, in fact, survive the flood. Good. Um, I know that's a spoiler for a series, but Lacey's <laughs> character has to survive. I right? was going to say, yeah, it wouldn't be much yeah. of a series if she didn't, right? <laughs> that's true. <laughs> and the fourth Maddie Hatter book is currently in the production process. It's called Maddie Hatter and the Singapore Sting. Maddie Hatter and the Singapore Sting. Yes, and it's set in, well, uh, Tokyo, then Hong Kong, then Singapore. So she's doing back to her roots of chasing stories from place to place. Ah, very good. I like that. That sounds really fascinating. So that'll be number four in the Maddie Hatter series. And if you've got a sense of fun in your reading preferences, by all means, please look up Jane Barnard on Amazon. I'm looking at her author page right now. I'm looking at your page right now, Jane, and it's just fabulous. I see a picture of you holding an umbrella and wearing steampunk goggles. (laughs) (laughs) Great hat, by the way. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Yes, I love that hat. Yeah. When the Flood Falls is available in July. So by the time you hear this episode, it will be available for sale. But Jane, we've read today Easter Aches, which appeared in World Enough and Crime, which was a Carrick Publishing anthology. And I really like that story. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about the crafting of it? And don't worry about any spoilers, because we've already read it by the time we're speaking. Okay. Well, World and, uh, Easter Aches is set in Capiscasing, Ontario where I briefly went to high school, way up there in the north. It's essentially a two-day drive from anywhere. And it's about the old secrets that lurk in small towns that nobody really wants to put all the pieces together. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's somebody disappears from a small town, and as long as there's a plausible explanation for them to be gone, people don't look. Mm-hmm. But there are many, many miles of bush where you can hide bodies. Oh, yes. Oh, and yes. We, we used to hunt out by Mitchell's Corners when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I thought of that even long before I started writing crime. I thought, you could lose a body out here forever. Oh, yeah. Ontario in particular is notorious. Uh, Ontario and Quebec are really the two big forestry provinces, and... Um, there are just miles and miles where there's nothing but trees. In fact, my husband and I own 63 acres of a tree farm. That it was a Christmas tree farm, but now it's completely overgrown. And it's got a back 40 acres that was old uh, logging. So it's old hardwood. And it's just beautiful. We love to hike in there. And I've often thought, what a great place to hide a body, you know? <laughs> oh, can I tell you my hide-the-body story? Yes. I had my godmother was an avid Agatha Christie reader. And she may or may not have given me my first Agatha Christie. I don't quite remember. She gave me a lot of books over the course of my life. She and I were walking at Bouchard Gardens in Victoria one summer evening, about 20 years ago. And for readers who've never been to Bouchard Gardens, it's a world-class garden built around an old quarry. Deep cut cliffs and beautiful plantings and a fountain in the background and they pipe music through on summer spring evenings 
and they light the plants beautifully. Mm-hmm. And my aunt and my godmother and I were walking along in the sunken garden, and we came to a beautiful spreading red maple tree artfully lit against the cliff wall with a dark shadow underneath it. And this sweet old lady, by that time she was 70, looked at this beautiful plant for a long moment, and she sighed from the bottom of her soul and said, wouldn't that be a lovely place to hide a body? (laughs) We do love our mysteries, don't we? I think it's said that uh, the bulk of mystery readers are female, um, which doesn't surprise me at all. Although I know that men are loving their thrillers and mysteries too, you know. We all really enjoy them. We love playing sleuth in our minds and seeing if we can figure it out. And uh, where is that body anyway? Where are those feet sticking out? I often think that as we're passing different places. I did once see a body being discovered. Oh, I was driving from Moose Jaw to Regina in Saskatchewan, where you've been. Mm-hmm. So you know it's flat and open, and it is not a place where you would normally associate no. a body dump with. No. But some unfortunate hitchhiker had laid down in the ditch sometime over the summer when the grass was very high and died there. Oh, dear. And as I was driving along, the farmer who had the contract to cut the hay in the ditches to, you know, feed to his cattle, mm-hmm. had come along and cleared the, you know, chopped off the grass just above the height of this body and then saw what was laying there. And I, I've often thought of that poor farmer just going about yeah. his business and then coming across a decomposed body that had been lying in the hot prairie sun for yeah. some time. So you don't need no, no, you really don't. And, uh, you know, there's an awful lot of that kind of land all across Canada. Um, in my previous episode, I talked a lot about something by um, Joan O'Callaghan called Colors of Canada. And what she's done is she's written a travelogue for all of the country. And she's uh, she's enticed Jane Coriel, who I'm sure you know, who is an artist here in Toronto, to do illustrations for the book that can be colored by the kids as you travel. And hearing you talk, Jane, about uh, different places in Canada, I mean, I just really want to reach out to any listeners who may be international and invite them to get to know our country a little bit better through our writers, you know, like uh, Jane Barnard and Joan O'Callaghan and... Uh, any number. I mean, contact me anytime and I will give you a huge list of Canadian writers that I could recommend. Um, I'd be happy to do that. And Jane, definitely you are now on my to be read list. And I thank you very much for talking with us about Maddie Hatter and about um, and about when the flood falls, which is available now. Um, it's been a real pleasure having you on. And it's clear that you love talking about your work and about writing in general. Well, thank you so much for inviting me, Donna. Yes, and for anyone who doesn't know this, Jane and I had a little bit of a scheduling problem, so I am thrilled that we managed to do this. Thank you again, Jane, from the bottom of my my heart. I want to send a great big dead to rights thank you to Jane Barnard for joining us today on the pod. You can find dead to rights at deadtorights.ca or at our Facebook page. Our Twitter handle is at deadtorightspod. 
We'd love to hear from you at carrickpublishing.com or at our Carrick Publishing Facebook page. You can find me, Donna Carrick, on Twitter at Donna underscore Carrick or at my website, DonnaCarrick.com. My husband and partner in crime, Alec Carrick, is on Twitter at Alex underscore Carrick or at AlexCarrick.com. Join us next week when we feature a gem of a literary author, Jen Knox, of The Glass City and After the Gazebo. Our Dead to Rights theme song is Eyes of Gold, composed and performed by Ted Carrick, who also brought us all original story scoring music. You can find more of Ted's original music at his YouTube page, Ted Carrick Music, or on Twitter, at Ted Carrick. Thanks for joining us. See you next week. Dusty road, a man alone. His vital signs go on hold. And I don't know what you've been told. But the years have turned my eyes gold. And I told you what you told me. We'd never be in the same boat for free, yet it rides, let it ride.